Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. All right. How is everybody? Uh, Did you bring your Bibles? All right, let me see. Who's got their Bibles? I mean, I I do take your word for it, but... All right. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can grab two places as we're going to open. I've really felt my heart directed in a particular way as I've just continued to pray about our time together. Um, Turn first to John 17. So we're going to turn to John 17, right? We, we all love John 17. Right, you mentioned John 17, and it's like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> uh, then also from John 17, uh, grab the book of Ephesians. All right, so we'll grab John 17. Amazing chapter. They're all amazing. But we'll grab John 17, and then as you grab John 17, if you have it digitally, it's going to be kind of difficult to do that, right? That's one of the advantages of having actual pages. You can, you can put a bookmark somewhere. You can grab it with your thumb or with a finger or fold it right in another place. Digitally, it's kind of tough unless you've got multiple devices, and, and then I'm going to trust you to actually be in your Bible, right, and not on Instagram or, or somewhere else if you kind of check out on me somewhere. Right? It's only funny because, you know, it is real. Like, um, I count it a great privilege to be with you over these days. Um, I'm really grateful to the Lord for his grace to be in the same place over these next handful of days. Um, I don't take it lightly. Um, I, I say this often. I'm just not looking for things to do. And I, and I don't say that to make much of my yes, I say that to make much of the Lord's yes. Um, Because when you're really praying and seeking the face of God, uh, because it is possible to pray and not seek his face. (laughs) Right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, right? There's a distinction there because you can do a lot of praying and not actually be seeking his face Um, You can be praying and seeking your own agenda. You can be placing your own demands. You can be longing for the establishment of your own kingdom and or dreams. Um, You you can be launching a bunch of initiatives and then begging for Jesus bumper stickers on them. Uh, But he says, pray and seek my face, right? So we want to pray and we want to seek his face, right? When they said, teach us to pray, he said, pray this way, your kingdom come and your will be done. Right, so, so it almost, he begins with an impossibility that unless we are willing to offload our own agenda, uh, he's implying we can't enter into true prayer. <laughs> but that's not anything that I wanted to talk about. Um, but as I've been praying, uh, I really felt the Lord leading me towards being with you. Um, and it means a lot to me. Um, it does, it means a lot to me. I pray about everywhere I go. My wife and I pray about it together. Again, I'm just not trying to chase after every opportunity or run after every open door. 
Uh, right? When you're in it long enough, you begin to realize not every open door is from the Lord. Some doors open to test your heart. All right? John 6, 15, they're coming to make Jesus king by force. It says he withdraws to be with the Father. They're coming as a multitude to make him king, but he knows that he's not king because they say so. He's king because his father says so. And he doesn't need their open door. He doesn't need their ministry opportunity. He doesn't need their titling, their branding, their applause. He knows who he is, and so he's able to withdraw from certain open doors to go be with the father. It's just be encouraged, especially if you're functioning in ministry in some sort of way, whether teaching, preaching, itinerant of sorts. Not every door is from the Lord. And if we don't have real discernment, we'll end up going through doors that were meant to test us. Uh, And they end up revealing what it is that we're really after. And we end up chasing things and opportunities and name and fame and all of these things. Um, But John 6.15 says that you have to really know the Father to know which doors to say no to. Um, So I'm really excited to be here over these next days. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that was a part of um, helping to bring us here. Um, Thank you for all of... Those of you that I know from Sold, right? Like, yeah, we've had some wild times in Orlando, which is where I'm from, um, down in Central Florida. And so thank you for everyone. Thank you for your love and your hospitality. Um, Thank you for the honor of being with you over these days. Right? I believe in the Lord for something extraordinary as we journey through the scriptures over these next days together, that the power of the Spirit would be in our midst. And that as the power of the Spirit is in our midst, hey, believe me, I'm all for all of, uh, all the hype and all, all the crazy stuff. I'm down for it all, right? Right? I want it all. Um, but what I'm not necessarily into is a bunch of hype with no substance, right? J- just emotionalism that rubs off after a day or two or a week or two where like addicts, we get hooked on events and we just got to jump from event to event because we're not actually having something of real stature or substance that's transforming us as a person, um, which is what we want. We want real spirit transformation. We want real spirit transformation. I just don't want like goosebumps and tingles and the upward ride of the, the roller coaster Christianity that's centered on the next event and the next fire tunnel and this and that. I'm all for it. I'm all for it, right? But we can very easily find ourselves in the swirl, right? Because excitement and even necessarily encounter doesn't always lead to transformation, right? You have a whole generation of people rose from the dead out of Egyptian captivity, journeying through the wilderness with greater signs than most have seen. Cloud by day, fire by night, water from the rock, literally the cloud that would descend to come and meet with the man Moses. And uniquely enough, they're always encountering, but they're not actually changing. And I think if we're not, if we're not actually careful and if we're not actually discerning enough, we can just get hooked on to the hype ride. And if we're not aware, we can be in the place of encounter often, but yet still not actually be any different. And God actually says, I'm going to wait for another generation to arise so that I can move forward with them. Right? We have to be aware and we have to be open. And so when I say we want the real power of the spirit in our midst, I'm not saying just to hype up some emotionalism or to better cater to our individualistic agendas that we've come in with. What I'm saying is, is we need God's power to align us with the person of God and with his agenda. 
because power has an agenda. Power isn't some free-for-all. It's not some tool that we can just salt and pepper on our own little uh, ambitions or dreams. Power has an agenda. And we might get to that. And that's not my own opinion. That's Jesus's words in Acts chapter one. For in that day when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall receive power. But power not so that you can become famous in ministry. Power not so that you can establish a greater social media following. Power not so that you can just get breakthrough or business strategy or all of these other unique things that may at times be associated with God's desires in a transformed life. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is primary, there is an agenda that power has and it's to establish witnesses. For in that day when power comes on you, you will be my witnesses. So let's look at John 17 together because I believe there's some unique things tonight. Again, John 17 and then the whole book of Ephesians. I promise we'll take a helicopter ride over the book of Ephesians. Some of you are like, this dude can't be serious. <laughs> Man, how glorious to sing out in the place of worship about this Maranatha cry. Right, our hearts long for the reality of Revelation 22, man, the spirit and the bride say come, right? We know that there's coming a day when the son will come and possess his people. When this bridegroom king, when the son of man, when the crucified God will finally be able to possess what it is that he's been promised. And how glorious it is to sing out in the place of worship, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. How amazing, right? To join in corporate worship, which we understand there's one worship service. There's one worship service. There's one reality that's greater than everything that we see right now that might be as real as we know it. And that's this Revelation 4 and 5 throne room scene where there's a man that was slain, a lamb that was slain, a man that's alive from the dead, bearing the scars of his devotion for the bride that he thinks is to die for. And he's seated on the throne and in all glory and all honor and all majesty, in full splendor, in radiant glory, he's surrounded by angels and elders and creatures with great heavenly hosts as they join in to sing the great song of the Lamb. All blessing and honor and glory and power be unto the lamb that sits on the throne. In Revelation 5, for you alone are worthy to receive all power and glory and dominion. Why? Because you have done what no other could do. This man, this lamb that was slain, because simultaneously the tensions of seemingly opposite realities make perfect sense in the man. Things that seem uniquely distant and different are reconciled with great wisdom and power and beauty. For he is the lion and the lamb. He is the mercy seat and the judgment seat. And here on the throne sits the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And heavenly host is giving him glory. But why? They're singing the song to the one seated, enthroned in power and dominion. 
The one who says of himself, even in John 5, that the father is not the one to whom judgment has been given, but it is unto the son that he is given the right to bring all of the unique judgments. This son of man, this divine human, this infinite glory that takes on the finite creature that Daniel sees in his vision in chapter seven, riding upon the cloud. He sees one approaching the ancient of days and he's perplexed because he sees one that is God and man. He sees one like the son of man, which uniquely enough, we must understand that that term in Daniel chapter seven is the only time in the entire Old Testament where it's not referenced or the language is not the same as when God is speaking to the prophets. When he says, oh, son of man, go stand at the gates of Jerusalem and weep and wail and tell them that they've forsaken me, Jeremiah chapter two. He's not saying one born like a man, one born as of only flesh. But in Daniel seven, it's a God man. In Daniel seven, it's son of man, one that is fully divine and fully human. And it's important that we understand that the one that sits on the throne is the one that Daniel saw. Because if we don't understand that there's this great company rallied around in Revelation 5 from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. There's this beautiful conglomerate of people. There's this beautiful tapestry made up of the human experience, a redeemed creation, those that have been born again. Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, there's a reason that he doesn't say just in church because it's possible to be in a church and not be in Christ. But to those through a beautiful born again experience, to those that the glimpse has come to them, that this man, this worthy one is worth their whole life, that what they've been able to taste and see, oh, that he is good and that he's worth giving everything to. The pearl of great price, the dream, the ultimate obsession. He is now my unique fascination. And this man that Daniel sees is the same man that's on the throne in Revelation 5. And it's important because when we see him in Daniel 7, we understand that Daniel sees in chapter 7 when the Son of Man takes his seat on the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He sees a people that are exalted with him, serving alongside of him. And Daniel sees in his vision the clearest and fullest picture of the gospel in the entire Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. He sees a people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue serving and ruling, exalted alongside of the Son of Man at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And why does this even matter? It matters because in a moment when we look at John 17, if we don't understand what it is that Jesus understands about what it is that he's been promised then at times throughout the course of our life, we can carry different burdens and perspectives and realities. But I believe that tonight the Lord wants to issue out of his own heart a greater measure of his burden for what it is that he's promised his son. And I believe that tonight the Lord wants to pierce our hearts 
in a greater way, man, I'm telling you, some of our lives tonight are never gonna be the same. I'm not saying that to try to hype anybody up or to cheerlead or pep rally. I'm telling you, because if the Spirit does this, it's gonna alter your life. If the Spirit does this, it's going to change things forever. And I believe that the Lord wants to issue out of his own heart a deeper sense of his burden. But not just burden overall or like a, a rally alongside of us to say, hey, well, whatever you want, I want too. But a burden for what it is that he's actually after. And Jesus understands what he's after. And in John 17, it's actually what the whole chapter is about. In John 17, you find, if you could say it this way, you find God talking to God about you and me. You find the Father and the Son having a conversation. Jesus understands that it's a few days before he's going to willingly and joyfully hand himself over. For no man takes my life from me. I lay it down out of my own accord. In other words, to say this is my agenda. I'm not simply just yielding to man's agenda or even men filled with the inspiration of demonic powers. No, no, that's not what drives me. There's something much different that drives me. You see, I'm going to hand myself over because I understand why it is that I've come. All of this fits into a beautiful story. And in John 17, we find the father and the son having this exchange. And we find the son entering into the place of prayer. And he's praying not because he's iffy on whether or not he's heard, but he's praying for the benefit of those that have gathered around because he knows that the father hears him. But he's praying so that those that are alongside of him and those that are gathered around on that day might be able to have access into the intimate expression of the flame of love that's alive on the inside. And he's praying. And he's praying for what it is that his father has promised him. Do you know what it is that Jesus has been promised? The Moravians, which I'm sure we're incredibly familiar with, as they would leave the shoreline. It's where we get this phrase from, and it's amazing in every possible way. But as they were leaving the shoreline, many of them recognizing they would never see their spouses again. They would never see their children again. But they were so not convinced, they were so convicted. Their lives had been so altered by the beauty of this man through a born again experience and a radical transformation that only the spirit can make possible on the inside of those that actually love this man. They had been so radically transformed that many of them, after more than a hundred years of 24 seven worship and prayer, many of them leaving the shoreline, they would declare, they would exclaim, they would sing this song, may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings because they were convicted that what the father promised the son, they'd be willing to give their lives to see the son actually get his inheritance. But do you know what it is that the son has been promised? And I don't ask in a rhetorical way because I think at times we become so consumed with our Western version of Christianity 
And we live inside of a whole church reality that's become more concerned with celebrities and popularities and personalities. It's become so consumed with finances and politics and a worldly agenda. And all of its, I don't want to say all to exclaim, but the vast majority of its representatives have been hijacked by a world system and all of its agenda. And you find that whatever the world is endorsing, many of the church representatives are endorsing because they don't want to pay the price to actually come out and be separate. They don't want to stand for what it is that God says to stand for. But there's an oily company that's going to arise in this hour of history. There's a Psalm 45-7 company that are going to love what he loves and they're going to hate what he hates. And to them, they're going to be anointed with the oil of gladness and they're going to be exalted in the midst of their contemporaries. The call has not changed. But I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can become so consumed with this Western celebrity green room driven Christianity culture that we can forget what it is that Jesus has actually paid a price for. In Revelation 5, it says that they're singing songs and they say, for you have purchased a people for God with your own blood. You've done it. You've laid down your life. You've made a way. You've overcome. You've conquered what was previously thought to be incomprehensible or impossible to achieve. The infinite has become an infant. He has taken on flesh and lived among us as one of us to do for the rest of us what no one of us would ever be able to accomplish for all of us. And Jesus has overcome. And they're singing songs because he has purchased a people for God with his own blood. And in John 17, you find Jesus praying for this people. And I would just encourage you that whatever Jesus is praying for, you should be praying for too. Right? You don't want to be praying for stuff that Jesus is not praying for. Right? Like Hebrews 7.25, there's a great intercessor that's alive seated in the heavens. Right? I've heard it said best this way. There's an intercessor in the heavens and it's not a woman. It's a man. Right? Men, it's time to get in the game. Right? Intercession is not just for a group of ladies that don't have businesses to run or other things to do or yards to mow or manly stuff to accomplish. Like there's a man in the heavens and he's an intercessor. And Jesus is praying for something in John 17. And I joke, but I encourage you. You should know what Jesus is praying for. Because he's praying for something that he hasn't gotten yet. And so if we truly want to join with him in the place of his burden and bear his heart uniquely in the place of intercession, then it would be ultimate for us to understand what it is that he's actually interceding for. And in John 17, we get a glimpse into his heart. And he says, Father, you've promised me a people. That's what this whole thing is about. You've promised me a people. Well, this isn't just a John 17 thing. It's actually a beginning of creation, Genesis chapter two thing. It's not something that all of a sudden shows up on the radar in John 17. 
as if to say, well, where did this come from? All of a sudden, he's been working all these miracles, these demonstrations of power. He's been calling disciples. He's been opening the eyes of the blind. He's been multiplying food. But where did a people come from? Like, how does a people fit into the equation? Like, you just all of a sudden can't pop this idea of a people on us. Like, we need some track record of where this people comes from. Well, in Genesis chapter two, you have the father looking over the man that he made. We're all familiar. And in Genesis chapter two, it says that Adam, who is uniquely a man, but is also the first version of the human experience. We get that because Paul in Romans five says that an inheritance out of Adam's choice to sin fell on the entire human experience. So Adam uniquely represents the first version of humanity. And as the first version of humanity, we know that Jesus is referenced in Romans as well as the last Adam. He's the last Adam because he is the perfect embodiment of God's desires. He's the last Adam because he's the perfect example of what the human experience was always created to be. He's the last Adam because there never needs to be another version of human. He's the last Adam because God as a man has overcome the issues that fell onto man because of the choices of the first Adam. And in Genesis chapter two, you have the father looking over this first man. And he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He says, so I will form for you a suitable helper. I will fashion for you a comparable companion. Notice it is the father's desire to produce something out of his own longing for the son that he loves and wants to honor. That you don't find Adam asking for a bride, but you find the father evaluating the life and the condition, the situation of this first man. And out of his own immediate evaluation, he decides out of his own desire, my heart is moved for you. I long to provide for you. I want to honor you. And there's something that I, as a gift, want to give to you. And he says, I will make ready for you a suitable helper, one that will rule alongside of you. I will get ready for you a comparable companion. Note, comparable, one that is comparable to you. But it's not just the man in the garden that we need to take note of because there is an immediate evaluation of sorts. But when we hear these words, it's not good for the man to be alone. We should also understand it this way. It is not good for the son of man to be alone. And I will make you a bride that is going to be comparable to you. I will get ready for you a companion that is going to be a suitable helper. There's something out of my own desire that I long to do for you. There's something out of the father's heart where he longs to present a bride to his son. And we understand that uniquely Adam was laid down. His side was pierced. A rib was taken out of him, which the father used in order to fashion the bride that, we, that would be presented to him. 
We know that Adam was awakened, if you would, out of a deep sleep. We know that when Adam was awakened, that the bride that the father had longed to present to the son, the bride that the father used by piercing this man and pulling something out of this man, got ready for this man. And now this man has been awoken. And he says, I I have something to present to you. And Adam gets presented with his bride. Well, you can already begin to see the beautiful similarities that Jesus was laid down to. And his side was pierced as well. And blood and water began to flow, which is now what we understand is what the Father is using by the power of the Spirit to make ready this beautiful people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue that will be the comparable companion for this son, this bridegroom king to possess at what all of our hearts burn for, which is this Revelation 19, seven marriage supper of the lamb. And in John 17, John is actually giving the account of Jesus praying for what it is that he's been promised. And he's praying for this people And he's praying for these people and we should hear his praying for these people as our lives being set in the context of what it is that the father has promised him. Because he's not praying for something that does not affect us. But what he's actually praying for directly affects every single one of us that have pledged our allegiance to him. And he's praying. And he says, make them one even as you and I are one. We'll get to this in in later times, possibly. But in verse 11, he prays, make them one, even as you and I are one. He sets the terms for our unity and it's the experience or the glory of the Trinity. We're now our desire to manifest family on the earth is because of what we've been privileged to gaze upon in the God experience or this Trinitarian fellowship. What we gaze upon in Father, Son, and Spirit is what Jesus prays, make them one, but not on their own terms, but even as you are in me and I am in you, all of what we've ever known and enjoyed forever and ever and ever, make them one like us. Not just because they like the same teams or have the same number of kids, but make them one like us. And then again, in 21 and 22, make them one. And then again in 23, I've given them the glory that you've given to me. Listen to this. The glory you've given to me. This is Jesus talking to his father. The glory that you've given to me, I've given it to them. So that they can have wild meetings. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. It's just not what it says. So that they can be elevated in their hour of history and become supremely well-known because of the gospel. That's not what it says. It says, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, so that 
they can become perfect or mature in unity. If Jesus is praying for a people that are supernaturally unified, he's praying for a people that are going to become a sign and a wonder when this reality is actually manifested. And he says it. He says, if I get this, the whole world was gonna know that I am who I say I am, that my father has sent me into the world and that you belong to me. This is serious business. This is, this is not some sort of Christianese game. There's a lot riding on the line of what Jesus is praying for. But we don't need to see it and all of a sudden uh, apply all of this unnecessary pressure as if all of the power rests on us in order to make happen what it is that Jesus is actually asking the Father for. No, our confidence is in this, that whatever the Son asks the Father for, the Father gives the Son. That Jesus gets everything he prays for. That there's not a single thing that Jesus asked his Father for that the Father is not going to make good on. And so he's not going to do it because you and I might necessarily deserve it. He's going to do it and make good on it because his son deserves it. There's something the son has been promised. There's something the son deserves. There's an inheritance that the son is due. There's a reality that the father longs to be able to present to the son on that great day of release and possession. And it is the bride that his heart is on fire for. And he's not a polygamist. It's why he's praying, make them one. It might seem like mission impossible, more than 30,000 denominations just in Christianity alone. Lord, how are you ever going to accomplish the agenda of what it is that's on your heart for your son? And some of us have just chalked it up as if it's never actually going to happen and we're just gonna ride the wave of all of our divisions until the skies crack. But God is gonna do it. He's gonna reconcile every difference. He's gonna destroy every bit of division. He's going to unravel and offload every conversation that we've endorsed and even financed or even weaponized and politicized in order to create our own agendas because we long to cater to our preferences and prejudices rather than having them conquered with the power of the gospel. <laughs> it's going to be okay. And Jesus is praying that we would be one, supernaturally one, something of a divine nature, something that could only be produced by gospel power, something that only the wisdom of the cross and the blood poured out that purchased a people for God, that only if these realities were the infusion of its life and very being, that this would be the only way that he would actually get what it is that he's praying for. Because let's not forget, there's a lot of reasons and ways to be unified. But not everything that rallies momentum is of a divine nature. Right in Genesis 11, God came down because they were radically unified. <laughs> they had their own building project. I'm sure they were raising funds and all kinds of stuff. But God came down 
and they were radically unified with a demonic inspiration. But if we don't understand, Genesis 11 gives us a glimpse of a Psalm 2 reality. When the nations are raging, when they are going to radically engage in a singular conversation with hostility across the entire global narrative against Yahweh, his son as the choice ruler of all the universe and those that love him and love what he loves. Those that have pledged their allegiance to him and have aligned their affections with him in an ultimate way, this radical new creation, they will be hostile against them. And so Genesis 11 gives us a glimpse of the Psalm 2 reality. But if we don't understand that Jesus has been promised something, then we won't be able to discern the strategies of warfare that are aggressively working against us in an attempt to derail what it is that the Father has promised His Son. And this is what the book of Ephesians for us should be for. Paul ends the book of Ephesians with... It's not the last verse, but you could in some ways say that it is an absolute necessary charge in Ephesians chapter six. In verse 12, he says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. That's not our warfare. But our warfare is against rulers and powers and authorities and principalities of a grand scale of wickedness and darkness. There's an unseen realm where enemy and rebel forces to the desires and the agenda that God has, has launched an all out war in an attempt to derail the desires that God has to produce something that he's promised his son. And I'm not here to create a unique fascination with spiritual warfare. Man, I'm wearied from people that know more about snakes and scorpions and Leviathan spirits and all this other crazy stuff than they do about the man Jesus. Right, like we're more obsessed with, with all of these other things. We know more about Jezebel than we do Jesus. Right, I'm not here to create some weird fascination with dark forces and spiritual warfare because we're not wrestling with them is what Paul suggests. Our fight is not against flesh and blood and it's not even to glory in all of what might be authoritative ranks in the place of darkness. Now, at times, do we wrestle? Sure, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. Paul said, while at Ephesus, I wrestled with wild beasts. And I don't think he was just talking about people that had animalistic qualities. Well, like, oh, well, you know, you kind of look like, well, <laughs> you know, like if I thought about it enough, yeah, you kind of do resemble. <laughs> See? I don't think that's what he's talking about. But something that we have to consider is that if Paul could have just strutted into a city and cast down every power, why was he wrestling? If Paul could have just shown up anywhere he wanted to be 
and dethrone principalities. Why was he wrestling with wild beasts? And I think we have to understand the nature of the jurisdiction of power and principalities. Even that Daniel sees in chapter seven. Now I get it, it's cool. He's under my feet, he's under my feet. I get it, great song. I don't know how accurately biblical it is, but great song. But in Daniel chapter seven, it says that these wild beasts are roaming the earth and that they're enjoying a temporary jurisdiction. And this temporary jurisdiction is awaiting the son of man's return when he will come and physically establish his throne and give a permanent eviction notice, permanent in an ultimate sense, which in Romans 8 is what Paul says all of creation is actually groaning for. He says all of creation understands that it's been subjected to futility and hostility. All of creation is eagerly anticipating, it is groaning, it is longing for a reconciliation reality when the Son of Man will return and take his rightful place and our redemption, our salvation will be ultimate in the sense of its ultimate reconciliation. The ultimate reconciliation where everything that has ever resisted God's love and leadership will be evicted from the human and creation experience forever. Forever. And that's why right now we are born again Yet at times we wrestle. And why do we wrestle? Because there are still enemy agendas. There's still unique powers, principalities, forces in an unseen realm of wickedness and darkness that are longing to sway the hearts of men and women to side with their agenda. But in Ephesians 6, Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. So hear this, it's not names and faces. He says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but there's powers. But if we don't understand the scope of work that Paul is longing to accomplish in the book of Ephesians, then it can be very easy to get set down somewhere in a middle ground where we don't really know what to do. We don't really know how to act, how to respond. Well, in matters of spiritual warfare, does it just matter how loud I shout? No. Because powers are not intimidated by the decibel level. Powers aren't intimidated by the song selection. Powers aren't intimidated by scripture memorization. Powers are intimidated by an authentic transformation. Powers are intimidated by a people that are comparable to the man Jesus. Hear it this way, the father has promised the son a Jesus people. And when I say a Jesus people, I mean a people that have been conformed to the image of the son. This is the Romans 8:29 reality. And those that have come to believe, they've been predestined, predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of the son. The father has promised the son a people that will actually be like him a people that will be a suitable helper to him because they will be comparable to him. A people that will be transformed into his likeness. A people harvested, redeemed from a hostile human creation that through a born again experience 
There will be a real spirit transformation. Jesus said it this way in John 14, the enemy of the world has come, but I don't care. I'm not afraid. He has no thing in me. He has nothing in me. And this is what he's been promised. He's been promised a people that are transformed into his image. He's been promised a people that not only adopt a new language and attend meetings, but they've been conformed to his image from a default level from the inside out. A people made into his likeness by the power of a divine life alive on the inside of them that is conquering the self-life and the inherent nature that we were born with. A people that can now hunger and thirst after righteousness because of the Spirit's work and a real born-again transformation. For if any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creature, a new creation. He is a new version of human. All of the inheritance of the first Adam has now been undone by the last Adam. And if sin and death and hopelessness was the inheritance of this first man and the consequence of his choices, then how much greater are we now to abound with grace and glory and hope of a calling and the reality of the inheritance that is now the power that is at work in us that in Ephesians Paul Paul calls the saints. And in Ephesians chapter one, this is what we get. I told you we'll take a helicopter ride. Paul starts, without a spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's no shot for you to understand what I'm trying to unpack. He says, but I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for you because there's something God is doing. There's something that God has a desire for. There's something that Jesus has been promised. There's a narrative that God is strategically, sovereignly superintending. There's something governmentally that God is stewarding all of time and history as we know it towards a destination. It's not random. It's not obscure. God is still on the throne. He's ruling over all things, working all things together for good and in Ephesians 1, Paul says, without a spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's not any real hope because it's more than just information. And man, tonight, may the Spirit grant us fresh eyes to see the beauty of the people that Jesus has been promised, the power of the church, which is what Jesus has been promised. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says, we need a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And this is what he's praying for. And he's praying so that the eyes of our understanding might be opened, that we might know the hope of our calling. And he continues on, he says, because God raised a man from the dead. And this man, Jesus, there was something of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension that fits into a scope of work that God calls the eternal purpose. That it's not just random acts that fit somewhere on the timeline of history, but that it's actually intentional. 
that it had to happen that it was necessary in order to accomplish whatever it is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit ultimately desire. And Paul says that God raised this man Jesus from the dead and that the work of the cross actually carried an eternal purpose to it and that now alive from the dead and ascended into the heavens, that he is now a man alive First fruits from the grave, firstborn from the dead. He is now a man alive with power and glory, ascended into the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his great day of release and possession by way of presentation of the people that he's been promised. And he says, God did it, he raised him from the dead. And he exalted him above every ruler, every power, every principality, everything in heaven and on earth. That the man Jesus, alive from the dead, raised by the power of God, crucified, resurrected, ascended, all a part of what is the eternal purpose made way. John 19, 30, it is finished. Made way in order for them to have what it is that they together were after. That's Ephesians chapter one. God has done his part. He has put himself into a human creature. He has conquered death, the grave, the enemy, all powers and principalities. He's exalted his son, the rightful ruler of the universe. It is a fact, take it to the bank, and there's a day coming in front of all of us when that man will return riding on a cloud. But then Paul begins Ephesians 2 to say, and you too at one time were dead. Now, 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 now let's... Let's take two steps backwards. God has done it. He's become a man. He has lived free from the tyranny of the powers. Right? The enemy of the world has come. I'm not afraid. He has nothing in me. As a man, he has lived free from the powers of the air. He has lived without their influence, their rule, their dominion in his life, governing how it is that he thinks and moves. As a man, Jesus has overcome. He has lived free from their influence and have been exalted above their power. Well, Ephesians chapter two begins and says, and you too at one time were dead in your trespasses. But when you track through Ephesians two, it says, and you too, at one point, all of you, lived under the influence of the powers. Hear that. You also lived under the influence, the tyranny, the dominion of the powers. All of you. But because of what God has done, Ephesians 1. Because of what God has done, now, but God, with his tender mercy and kindness, and grace has raised you from the dead. Look at this. Ephesians 1, as a man, 
raised from the dead, exalted above the powers. Ephesians 2, there's a people that God is harvesting from the nations of the world through a born-again experience that he is raising from the dead who were once bound by the tyranny of the powers, who at one point lived under the dominion of darkness. There's only two categories. It's dead or alive. You know a lot of great people, great people that aren't born again are dead people. But Jimmy's a fantastic husband. I'm sure he is. But if Jimmy has not responded to the gospel the right way, Jimmy is a dead man. It's dead or alive. The gospel does not create alternative unique categories to pacify our desire to cater to our culture, to not want to stand as a wedge or to be called out ones or to be representatives or ambassadors. We are a merciful offering scattered across the nations of the world to proclaim or to bring the announcement of the gospel while there is still time to do so. Because God is patient and has a desire that men would repent. And he says at one point, this was all of you. All of you lived under the dominion of darkness. Well, this is Bible language. First John 5 says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Romans 12, Paul is talking to believers and he says, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Ephesians 2, the language is at one time, all of you lived under the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of the powers. But God has done something extraordinary to raise you from the dead where now by the power of the spirit, you can actually see the son and live in union with him, live in sweet and deep and real fellowship with God. You can be aligned to him and aligned to his purposes. You can be raised from the dead, no longer sin satisfied in a preservation prison of only being able to love you and do what satisfies you. God has set you free. And he says, now you're no longer foreigners and aliens. But he himself has become our peace. And he's come and preached peace to you who thought you were near and those of you who thought you were far. And he's brought you all together and he's destroyed all of the division between you. He's conquered all of the wall of enmity and all of the hostility and all of the division that existed between you. And he's done the most radical thing possible. He's reconciled Jew and Gentile through the blood of his son to purchase a people for God. He's reconciled them into the expression of one new man. And now as one new man, your lives are being knit together. And as your lives are being knit together, God is actually creating a habitation or a place of dwelling for himself and now the way that you live together in light of the gospel's power in a supernatural unity as family now the reality of this people this is what now Paul calls the church And in Ephesians chapter 3 he says that church bears a unique responsibility Ephesians 1, the man Jesus, alive from the dead, exalted above the powers. Ephesians 2, a people that he's been promised, alive from the dead, exalted above the influence of the powers, living together as family 
in light of the power of the gospel. Ephesians 3, you have the church, which is this people that live as the ambassadors or the representatives of this exalted man. These people as the church in Ephesians 3.10 bear the unique responsibility that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to rulers and powers. Together as a people, we bear the responsibility to embody a gospel power that reconciles us as family in a supernatural way comparable to the Trinity because we have pledged our allegiance to the man that's alive from the dead and exalted above the powers. And now we too, alive from the dead, broken, free from the influence of the powers, carry an embodiment of the responsibility to be the church. And now as the church, we live in light of gospel power. Now as the church, we have our lives knit together as family and as our lives get knit together, we create a habitation for God. And this habitation says something to powers. This habitation declares something to powers. This habitation actually reveals something that instructs. Another translation says instructs powers. What are they instructing to powers? Your time is coming to an end. What the father has promised the son he is going to get. And all of your unique ways and weapons of your warfare in order to derail what the father has promised the son as an inheritance will not prevail. And then he continues on. And he closes out chapter three with the great devotional verse, right? I'm sure some of us have it in our Instagram bio. I'm not against that. In Ephesians 3.20, and unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ forever and ever. To him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly it's in the context of the eternal purpose and what the promise is to the son. And the promise is to present to him a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The Ephesians 2 radical reconciliation is not just Jew and Gentile, but it's African, Russian, Filipino, Argentinian. It's all the nations of the earth now being redeemed. It's all the nations of the earth coming together in a supernatural unity and oneness, which is the intercession of Jesus in John 17. And again, whatever Jesus prays for, Jesus is going to get. And this abundantly more is in the consideration of what 
kind of work would have to be done in order for the father to make good on the promise that he gave to his son. And right now, as we survey the global landscape and the human experience, you might also be sitting here thinking to yourself, there is never going to be a way or a day when God is actually able to bring all of those that say they love Jesus together in a unified way. But I would submit to you that it's not up to you and me. That it's up to him. And he said he's going to do it. And he's going to do it. And in the consideration of how absurd that would be, Paul says, and now unto him who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly. Lord, only you have power to reconcile the nations of the earth. Lord, only you have power for all of the racial divides and political divides and socioeconomic divides. Lord, only you have power for all of our subcultures and all of the unique subcompartments and conversations of people groups and ethnic groups and skin tones and languages. You're the only one that has power to actually do this, but you do have power to do this. And to you, we give glory forever and ever in the church and in Jesus. But now interestingly enough, he starts chapter four, now walk worthy. Because there's a calling that you have. And if you don't understand the calling, then you won't necessarily know how to walk worthy but you have to know the call so that you can know if you're walking worthy in the call. And he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he continues on, fight to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because anything that disrupts our unity disrupts our authority. The father is perfectly unified. And the father again is our reference point for our unification. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are the reference point for what we call unity down here. It's not because we all subscribe to the same hashtag. It's not because we all grew up on the same side of town. It's not because we all prefer the skin tone that's in the room. It's none of these things. Our unity is now in proportion to the experience of the Trinity. Walk worthy of that call and fight to preserve that unity. And then he displays that he's even distributing gifts. Well, they're supposed to be gifts. These unique offices to the body in order to help equip them to grow up as a full man or as a full statured man, as a mature man, as a comparable man to him who is the head, which is the son. And these offices are supposed to be gifts to the body and not burdens. That may be for another day. But he releases these gifts in order to help awaken and activate and bring instruction or particular ministry to the body so the body can become mature. Because when the body grows up in maturity, it is into the head, him who is the son, the one that it is supposed to be comparable to. And God says, I'm going to do everything possible in order to make good on the promise that I made to my son. And then it gets weirdly practical. He says, so stop living like the Gentiles. He says, for God called you out of darkness. He says, their hearts are darkened. They don't understand what they do. 
but you've been born again. Your lives have now been filled with the glorious light of the radiance of the sun. He says, stop living like them. He says, no longer walk according to their ways. He says, the old man has been put off. The new man has been put on. And then he gets down to like even more super deep, yet really simple and practical stuff. He says, don't quench the spirit, Ephesians 4.30. But then he lets you know how you could actually do that. He says, so make sure that you're shepherding your hearts. Get rid of all envy, jealousy, anger, malice, wrath. Be kind, forgiving to one another, even as God was in Christ forgiving you. And then he gets into chapter five. And in chapter five, it's more super practical stuff about how we are to live in relationship to one another according to the power of this gospel that's been issued into each one of our lives. Because at times when you put people together, people together, you're going to get problems. But Paul is exhorting them that there is a way to live that is actually going to reveal that our lives have actually been purchased by that blood. And in chapter five, it's more. Live as children of the Lord. Live in the light. And it's more things of a practical nature. And then he gets into marriage because he's like, man, this is the only way that I can try to make this make sense to you. Jesus loves the church. It's like a man giving himself to his wife. And then we come into chapter six. And coming into chapter six, it's we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Why does he say that? Because if we don't understand that there are rulers and powers attempting to conquer us by way of dividing us, then we'll never be discerning enough to recognize the warfare that has been released against us. And at times, we'll find ourselves living in agreement with the agenda of the powers. It's okay. At times, rather than being the place where people are able to gaze upon what it looks like to live free from the powers, they'll see a people that sing the songs, they know the verses, but on a heart level, we're given over to the influence of the powers. And on a heart level, our lives are no different than those that are in the world. Oh, we attend meetings and pray for our meals, but we're bitter, we're angry, we're envious, we're ambitious the same way the world is. We have the same dreams they do. And if you held us side by side, the hostilities are the same. The divisions are the same. The endorsements are the same. I get that, not everybody. But Paul is saying that there's a people that have been raised from the dead alongside of Jesus that are supposed to demonstrate an alternate reality. That there's a people that are supposed to be planted across the nations of the world as a heavenly colony. We are now earthly ambassadors of a heavenly reality. We're not American Christians. We're believers planted in America here to display a different reality.
here to reveal a different sense of living. When people look at our lives, they should say, oh, that's what it looks like to actually be free. Oh, that's what it looks like to actually live free from the influence of the system of the age. That's what it looks like to live free from the dominion of darkness. That's what it looks like to live free from the current of the world. That's what it looks like to live free from all of the political spirit, racial spirit, money-driven, materialistic spirit. That's what it looks like. But rather, in many instances... The church, without a real understanding of its calling, gets hijacked by the influence of the powers to live in agreement with the agenda of the powers to divide us. I would submit to you, we have zero reason to be divided except the ones that we willingly embrace. And if the gospel doesn't have enough power to destroy your prejudice or your preference, then it has no power at all. Because the power of the gospel is to reconcile a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and then to plant that people as the church, as unique representatives and ambassadors to repopulate the cities, regions, and nations of the world with a reality that could only be made possible of a divine substance, that could only be made possible with a life that has been issued from God himself to free us from the self-life with the issuing of a divine life. Where all of what we know as our inheritance of a sin-saturated way of living, seeing, thinking has been destroyed. And God now has a people purchased with blood for himself that he calls his church. He calls that church. The church is not just some event center. And heaven forbid, it's not some kind of franchise. But we're in an hour where the brands are coming down and the bride is going to be exalted. Where all of these ministry brands and personalities and icons that are eclipsing the attention and the affection deserving to the bride. They're coming down. And God is going to establish in greater measure what it is that he promised his son, especially as we're leaning in towards the end of the days. And this is what Jesus is praying for. Give me that people. Give me that people. Give me a people that live free from the powers of the air. Give me a people that are so radically unified that it could only be real by the working of the Spirit in their midst. That the working of the Spirit has conquered all of their unique envies, jealousies, hostilities, prejudices, destroyed all their preferences, unraveled all of the agenda of the system of the age, unraveled all of the power that's at work inside of a self-indulgent way of living. Because this is what Paul describes as the agenda of the powers in Ephesians 2. We were all prisoners to live self-indulgent or to overindulge in what we thought was best and what we felt we wanted. Yeah. 
But Jesus is saying, give me a people that will be planted in every city throughout the nations of the earth that will live as a heavenly colony. Are you praying for this? Are you asking the Lord to raise up a people planted as a heavenly colony? A people whose very way of life reveals that they live free from the tyranny of the system of the age. In whatever way regionally that looks like, feels like, right? I get it, the touch and feel, cities are different. Every city has a different personality, I understand that. But Jesus' heart is on fire for his bride and he's coming back to possess his church. And I'm not talking about the church as an event center. I'm not talking about the church as a franchise or a brand. I'm talking about the church as this people. The church as this bride. The church as this family of new creatures. The church as this heavenly colony of the reality of this new experience of humanity. This Romans 6 alive from the dead. This Ephesians 2, alive from the dead, no longer bound to powers. In relationship to Ephesians 1, identifying as a Jesus people because Jesus is the one that has made a way. And now King Jesus, may you have the people that you were promised. And I feel tonight that the Lord wants to give us a greater burden for the church. And we could too easily just hear what it is that I said and just easily wash it off or brush it off. Like, ah, oh, the church ain't a big deal. The church is a big deal. The church isn't a big deal because you think so or because I think so. The church is a big deal because Jesus thinks so. And the church is a big deal because it's what he's been promised. And it's what he said he was coming back for. And the church is a big deal because it's what, according to Ephesians 3.10, is bringing instruction to powers and reminding them that no matter how hard they might, that what God promised his son is going to prevail. And we need a greater burden for the church. We need a greater burden for the church in this region. Man, Lord, make us agents of reconciliation. Man, we want a move of God in our region. Well, there's not gonna be a face of the franchise. There's not gonna be some superstar riding the wave of momentum because God is reconciling his people. God is unifying his people across denominational bounds, across ethnic divides, across social class and status, where rich man, poor man, brown man, white man, educated man, uneducated man, where pastor and plumber worship God and find reconciliation at the table. And they come together because of the blood of Jesus on behalf of God's purposes to prevail in a harvest field in a region. And if we're longing to see an extraordinary move of the spirit, then we have to partner our hearts with what it is that Jesus is praying for. And it can't be use us, but don't use those guys. Because all of us secretly are praying for a move of God, but also desperately are hoping it doesn't come through certain folks. Lord, please don't break out at the church up the street. If I had to rally alongside of what they were doing, Lord... Oh God, I want you to move. 
Just don't move through them. Start it with me. Start it with this guy over here that I at least like. But I feel the Lord tonight wants to release a greater sense of his burden for his church. Which is what Paul starts with in Ephesians 1. There's a reason that he prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's because if we're not careful, we can become very casual. And in our consumer conditioned culture, we can very easily come and cherry pick and church hop. And Paul says, I'm going to pray for you that you actually see something by the Spirit. I'm going to pray that God would open your eyes because if you ever catch a glimpse, I'm telling you, if you ever see what he sees, if you ever even get hit with an ounce of the jealousy that Jesus has for the people that he purchased with his own blood, you'd never be casual about it again for the rest of your life. Because Paul is saying, if you ever see it, you'll never be able to unsee it. And maybe quite possibly, we've never seen it. Maybe we've seen buildings. Maybe we've seen events. Maybe we've seen orders of service, which this is not what Ephesians 4.30 is talking about when it says, don't quench the spirit. It's not sister so-and-so that claps whenever nobody else is clapping or brother, whatever his name is, that gets up and runs when everybody's supposed to be sitting down. That's not how you quench the spirit. Paul is saying you have to understand that there is a hostile reality in an unseen realm that is hell-bent on bringing all of their efforts to destroy what it is that the Father has promised the Son. I'm telling you, if you ever catch a true glimpse of the church, you never view politics the same. You never view racism the same. You never view all of these unique ways that culture and media and newscasters and all of different levels and layers of government and world scenarios. You would never consider the attempts to divide us the same way again. If you ever saw what Jesus saw and caught a glimpse of what it is that he thinks about when he's praying. But this is what he's praying. Give me this people. I have to have them. That's John 17, 24. I have to have them because I want them to be with me where I am so that they can behold me and I can reveal my glory to them forever and ever and ever. Man, I'm praying that the Spirit is going to mark our hearts tonight with a burden for the church. This was Paul's jealousy. At the end of 2 Corinthians 5, we're more familiar or acquainted in relationship to the world around us. We now live as ambassadors, right? We, we carry the ministry of reconciliation, we bear the word of reconciliation. 
He says, and as God's ambassadors, we are heralding this gospel message. One translation says, we are literally begging and pleading with men on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so it should be a desire that we carry to be agents of reconciliation, to be weapons to destroy the work of division in our city and in our region. Instead of propagating it, financing it, endorsing it in a variety of ways. Now we might never necessarily say it that directly, but how we live and how we go about what we do might actually preach a different reality. But Paul says as weapons of reconciliation, we've been launched into the world, destroying divisions wherever we can find it, which is his whole discourse and exhortation throughout the book of Ephesians. In light of these things, now live this way together. And don't let anything get in the the midst of you. Don't let anything come up in your heart that would cause disruption. Don't let anything happen in your heart that would create a wedge or a divide. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But we so easily live with dysfunction. We live with disruption. We live with distortion. We celebrate division. We live and maybe, maybe passively because we're not actually, what, oh, I'm not gonna get in the way. I'm not gonna get in the game. I don't have anything to say. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are different than peacemakers. Peacekeepers are all the ones that are just trying to cater to every agenda that's out there. Peacemakers are running to the dividing line and standing for the truth and reconciling against the agenda of darkness. Amen. I believe the Lord tonight wants to mark our hearts. We're the same thing that creation is groaning for. This is what creation is groaning for. Anxiously longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Not just those who champion a particular stream. Not just those who become poster boy and or girl for a particular denomination. Again, more than 30,000 denominations in the sphere of Christianity alone. 30,000 plus reasons to be divided. God's going to do it. But a people, is this what your heart is groaning for? Is this what your heart is longing to see? Because this is what Jesus is praying for. Give me this people. It's this people that he's been promised a John 17 unity in Ephesians 4 maturity. It's this people that he's been promised. Are we burdened for it at all? And I'm not talking about the church just as a place for us to uniquely flaunt our gifting. Are we burdened for it at all? Are we gripped at all by the Spirit for Jesus to have what it is that he's been promised? Or are our lives so consumed with other desires, other ambitions, other goals, 
other materialistic or even corporate or career-driven endeavors? Are we just so self at the center that the consideration, may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of what he's actually suffered for? Is it Jesus at the center? And I'm not saying that you got to do something different, but maybe you go back to the same with a different burden. Maybe you go back to the same with a new lens. Maybe you go back to the same with a real gospel, God's eternal purpose type framework where things stay the same, but you're uniquely different. And the heart cry, the groan, the longing on the inside is now in a deeper level of partnership with what it is that Jesus is actually interceding for. Could you not tarry with me just a little longer? There are things on my heart that I want to bring you into. There are things that I'm burdened for that if you would let me, I would bring you deeper into my heart. And I would let you touch my burden by my burden touching you. And when my burden touches you, it'll ruin your life in the best possible way. When my burden touches you, it'll crush all of the appetite for these other competitors and rivals. If my burden actually touched you by way of intimate access, you'll groan for what I groan for. You'll intercede for what I intercede for. You'll find yourself with great longing asking the Father for what it is that I'm asking him for. Give me this people, Jesus says. Man, I want to see the Lord have this people. And I believe he wants the people in this region. But it's going to take an extraordinary work of intercession and reconciliation for the Lord to have the people that he's been promised in this region. But I believe that the Father is going to make good on it and that he's released power for it. But he's looking for a people that would join him in the place of intercession for what it is that he is interceding for. And today, will you answer the call? Who will join him in the secret place to tend to his heart, to carry his burden? Who will join him even in public arenas, prayer room, house of prayer, the praying church? Who will burn what he's burning for? Who will long for what he's longing for? Man, I'm telling you, if if the Spirit doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. And our lives can just so easily get spun up in a whirlwind of a million different things, and they can all be good. But I'm asking the Lord to touch our hearts tonight. Because I believe that he is going to deposit this groan on the inside. Lord, give us your groan tonight. This Romans 8, 19, creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons. All of creation subjected to hostility and futility, Romans 8, 22 is groaning right now. 23, we too 
because we bear the Spirit, are groaning for what God is groaning for, are you? Romans 8, 26, the Spirit praying the perfect will of the Father is groaning on behalf of His purposes. Man, I believe that it's, it's a deeper place than just my wants. There's a place on the inside where we long and we groan. Oh, I've got to have that. Have you ever said that? Have you ever longed so deeply for something? You just, you just felt it. Where on the inside? I don't really know, but it's there and it's real. And it's a place beyond just easy communication, but it's deep, which is why Psalm 42 says, as deep calls unto deep. The deep things in God initiating and touching the deep things in you, creating a sense of tug or longing on the inside. As deep calls unto deep. I'm gonna ask us to stand all over the room. If you could just keep playing for me. If you're here tonight and you're in ministry, I'm praying that the Lord brands your heart with a jealousy for the church, for his church. The church is not just the means by which you can finance your lifestyle in ministry. The church is not just some doorway or some platform where you can flaunt your own gifting as a way to exalt your own name and influence. The church doesn't belong to us. He has a church and he will build it his way and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and he will have a people for himself, alive from the dead, living free from the reality and the influence of the powers in the system of the age and they will live as his ambassadors, groaning for what he groans for, aligned to his agenda and his purposes, proclaiming this gospel with great jealousy. And Lord, I'm praying tonight all over the room, Would you mark every heart? Would you mark every heart? And as Paul prayed, grant a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Open our eyes to see your church. Open our eyes to see the reward of the lamb that was slain. Open our eyes to see the beauty of the saints, the power 
of these representatives, these witnesses that are yours, Lord. Open our eyes that we might look afresh and gaze to even catch a glimpse at what you see. Lord, would you mark every heart with a jealousy for your church? It's not something we can work up in a fleshly way, Lord, and that's why we're asking you for grace. We're asking you for grace. Holy Spirit, to brand our hearts. We're asking you, Lord, for this deep calls unto deep. Would you pull us? Would you free us from all of our criticisms, from all of our prejudices and our preferences, from all of our accusations, from all of our affiliations that just continue to perpetuate division and hostility? Would you free us from our compartmentalization, all of our subcultures and our divides, would you free us, Lord? As deep calls unto deep, we're asking you for a fresh branding. We want to join the man Jesus in the place of intercession. But we want to do it with pure hearts that have been kindled afresh. Yes, with first love, but also with a flame to burn for what he burns for. how we're going to close out together if you're here tonight and you just have even if it's a weak and broken and simple cry on the inside Lord I want to burn for what you burn for regardless of how weak you feel your reach is how broken your efforts are at times If there's something on the inside where you say, Lord, if you would touch me tonight, I want to burn for what you burn for. If you would touch me tonight, I want to burn for what you burn for. Man, the days of playing games are over. The days of giving my life to lesser lovers and all types of other competitors are over. Lord, if you would touch my heart tonight, if you would brand me with the fire of desire, Lord, I want to burn and I want to burn for you.
I want to burn for you and I want to burn for what you burn for. If you would touch me tonight, even as we were exhorted in the beginning, I want to burn for you and I want to burn for what you burn for. Here I am, Lord. This is all I have. I have a simple, weak, broken yes. This is all I can bring. The Lord tonight says that's enough. Bring me your weak, simple, broken yes and watch what I do. Bring me all of your inability and watch what I do. Bring me all of your insufficiency and watch what I do. Bring me your idea of the chasm that exists between you and destiny or promise or purpose and watch what I do. Bring me your yes and watch what I do. So we're going to close out in worship and intercession together. And we're going to ask the man Jesus to touch us afresh with the fire of his spirit. So I'm just going to ask you all over the room, man, if you have this desire in your heart, we'll come through and I don't know, possibly lay hands on people or, or whatever. We'll see whatever happens. But if you have this desire, this cry, Lord, touch me tonight. Give me fresh fire. I'm going to burn for you and I want to burn for what you burn for. I'm going to ask you, come up, just, just step out from where you are and start to join me up here in the front. Come on, we're going to close out together and we're going to go for it. I want to burn for what you burn for. We're going to ask for the church to emerge in this region. Come on, even as we come, let's just begin to lift our voices to the Lord. Come on, from a heart level. From a heart level. Whatever's in your heart, just begin to let it out. Come on, release your affection. Release your desire. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app.